So Katie, this has been a sad week for the space community as we learned to the passing of Michael Collins. And of course, Michael Collins was part of that original Apollo 11 crew um, on the mission to the moon in 1969. How well did you know him? Well, I have to say that we are we are all a family, and he is an especially treasured member of that family. I mean, he was really just, he was so generous to many of us, you know, even in the past weeks, sharing perspective, just like just the right perspective at the, at the right time. And he's just a very, he's a very special person with an astonishing career, but mostly he's, we just, we're just really going to miss him. Yeah, and it it always strikes me when we have these conversations just how tight-knit this community of astronauts is and how deeply knit you are with that that experience that you all share in common. Well, something that I think really sticks out is, you know, for someone who was part of such an historic mission and played such a pivotal role being the the command module pilot, the Columbia command module being mm-hmm. in orbit around the moon while Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin were on the moon. It was a pivotal role, and it seems like somebody like that must be so like up on this pedestal, and you'd never be able to reach them. And as soon as you meet him, you can reach him. And you know, even past that, um, I don't know if you know he has a Twitter account. Yeah. So actually, you were telling me about this, and I you you should share some of this because it it just actually blew my mind in terms of the humanity of Michael. Just just a few days ago. He wrote one that said, uh, you've seen the world in my window. Now I want to celebrate what the world looks like through your windows. Snap a picture of your favorite view and use the tag world in my window. Let's celebrate the beauty in the world around us. And I find that so moving. I, knowing everything that we now know, um, especially coming up to his passing, that he was still able to inspire up until that point. And just on Earth Day, just last week, I'm certain... If everyone could see the Earth floating just outside their windows, every day would be Earth Day. There are few things more fragile or more beautiful than Earth. Let's work together today and every day to protect our home. What a legacy. Special guy. He'll be missed. I'm Katie Coleman. And I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's episode, we're asking, what do we do about space junk? So, Katie, you must have encountered space junk up on the International Space Station. And we're talking about the stuff outside rather than inside. Well, I was just going to say my cabin, I mean, anyone that knows me knows that my cabin was probably right. not spiffy. Although we, 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 I- should, we, should, we should make this clear <laughs> that we're not talking about the Katie Coleman type of space junk. Oh. Oh, my siblings are going to love this. <laughs> and actually, you know, it, it, microgravity, having everything floating around really does impose a certain amount of discipline because, I mean, your stuff will be gone. You will never find it. But we are actually talking about a much more serious subject, right. which is the debris out in space. And it's a very real part of of life up there and also life on the ground for the people that are tracking this debris. Because we can track small things and, and big things, of course. And living up there on the space station, certainly several times over my six-month expedition, there's a time when it's just so hard to predict whether that debris is actually going to intersect with our path that we actually climb on our Soyuz, our rescue ship, 
uh, just in case. Right, right. And we should, we're going to get into this in the, the interview, but we should make it clear to people listening that, that sort of space junk isn't just bits and pieces of stuff floating around outside the International Space Station or a spacecraft. It is stuff going around the world at bullet speeds. And I, I, it's just going through my head. I, we are such a profligate society in terms of we use things and we throw them away. It's just that usually your trash doesn't come back and hit you at several hundred miles an hour. <laughs> well, actually, so I mean, Andrew, it's faster than that. And that's the whole right. problem is the head-on collision is really something. And, and we're I'm being a little funny about it, but it's a very serious business, and especially yep. as we get more crowded. Now, luckily for me, we have a, a guest who is very well-versed in space debris this week, and that is my colleague, Mark Brown. Yeah, and I, I this was just a, such a fascinating conversation, but such an important one as well, as you say, because the more people we send up into space, the more stuff we send up, the more debris we seem to be creating. So we should we should probably move on to other obsessions and talk about our weekly obsessions for this week. Um, Katie, beyond space junk, what have you been obsessed with? It is spring in New England, and so I have been obsessed with spring and the fact that it is so elusive mm-hmm. and yet fascinating. I mean, I, I my office is above the garage. I look out. I live up in western Massachusetts. And last week, I mean, we had two snowstorms and a hailstorm. And our, I mean, our magnolia tree, I mean, it was just, it was filled with these white flowers. It was the most magnificent thing. And they just, they actually did manage to hang in there. And the daffodils still came up. And yesterday, tulips and asparagus. And So I was going to say, you you have me at daffodils. Uh, so I'm recording this sitting in Phoenix, Arizona. We do not have daffodils. And I miss them so much coming from the UK. It, it is this kind of, it is just spring. It is this, it's a color like no other in the sunlight. Yep. And... I don't know. And, and actually, when the grass is that very special green, so right. I don't know. It's, it, it's If you blink, you miss this special time. And I just try not to blink at spring. Don't blink. So, Andrew, once again, I find myself almost afraid to ask. Okay. I mean, is it, well, we've talked about crochet before. I think Kamala Harris crochets. Does she? Did you know that? Smart woman. I, I, she did not tell me herself, but I did read that. So just so you know, you might have some really good company. Everybody but, should crochet, but I'm not going to be talking about crochet this week. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm standing on two feet. I'm ready. So actually, I I, I want to talk about science fiction. So I've just finished a, a series of, of sci-fi books, which I found absolutely fascinating. Um, so it's a series that I suspect most people haven't come across called Singularity's Children by a British author, Toby Weston. I have um, not. No. Um, and they intrigued me because there are a series that talks about the transition of society from something similar to what we know at the moment to something that looks like a, a wild science fiction future um, because of the, the ways in which technologies that we're developing at the moment evolve. And what fascinates me about this series and, and really drew me in, I mean, there are four books and I just read them back to back. That's something for you because you've read a lot of science fiction. It, it is, um, but, but the books are based on technologies that I work with uh, technologies such as artificial intelligence and uh, gene editing and biotechnology and nanotechnology. Um, but but Tony Weston extrapolates these technologies that we're developing now to look at 
what the future might be like as as they evolve. And one thing really struck me with this. I so many intriguing ideas here. Um, and this is a is this ethic, intriguing, good or bad? Well, I don't know. It is probably bad, but but let me sort of tell you what it is. Um, it's the idea that somebody could engineer a virus to make you allergic to meat proteins. So in the book, the idea was that there was this, this group that really wants to transform society. So they engineered this virus. Um, so everybody got incredibly sick until they realized that they just couldn't eat meat. Um, and it was a way of translating or tra transferring all of society over to a, a vegan lifestyle. And I'm reading this thinking, A, this actually sounds plausible with gene editing technologies we could do at the moment. B, it would solve a lot of environmental issues. And C, the morals of it are really weird. I'm, 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 I'm going to vote no. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, but this is where, you know, I don't know, just because we develop new technology, does it mean we have to take away choice? See, that that's it. And that's what makes it so interesting. Of course, this is right in my wheelhouse. This is exactly what I do. Um, but then I thought, imagine what would happen if I, I'm going to go back to the idea of that, that first human expedition to Mars. And say you're on this, um, th this trip and somehow someone has brought this, this virus on board. But half the meals you've got have got meat proteins in them. The consequences could be devastating. Totally. I'm just going to say that on our space station mission, it depends who you have on your crew, but I'll just say that I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I like meat, but you know, um, it was a very precious commodity on our mission. And right. I did a lot of very good trading. Yep. So, but, so, so actually, maybe the takeaway from this is we ought to start getting our astronauts to think about vegan lifestyles moving forward, just in case. I think you should read book five. <laughs> we'll wait for that. <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Today on Interplanetary, we're asking, what do we do about space junk? Our guest is Mark Brown. Mark was an Air Force fighter pilot and NASA astronaut who flew on the Columbia and Discovery space shuttles. He served in several capacities in aerospace and is currently the chair of the Association of Space Explorers Committee on Space Traffic Management and Orbital Debris. Mark Brown, welcome to Interplanetary. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. This is really exciting for me. I have two astronauts on the line with me. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> well, to me, it feels like family dinner, you know? <laughs> right, that's right. And who am I? Am I the gooseberry or the interloper? <laughs> you better you, you bring are, dessert. <laughs> <laughs> right. So as humans have continued to explore, I mean, that, that it's so exciting that we're seeing more and more people leaving our planet. And as I like to say, I mean, I used to think that space was somewhere else and we would like go there. But then once you've been, you realize that actually the place that we live, the place that we call home is just bigger than we thought. It's, you know, space belongs to all of us. And that's actually the problem now with so many people going to space and rockets launching. And there there is a space debris problem. And Mark, I wondered if you could just you know, give us an orientation. What does this look like and what can we do? Right. Well, unfortunately, it's a long answer to a short question, but, but, <laughs> You're but let, allowed. Me, let me, okay, let me start by framing it. Um, the first satellite was launched in 1957. And so at that point, nobody had to worry about 
you know, traffic control for spacecraft, much like when the Wright brothers flew in 1903. You know, you didn't have to worry about banging into somebody else. Well, now you fast forward to just this past year, where instead of one satellite going up on one rocket, uh, we had 143 satellites that went up on a single rocket. And the population in space has gone from essentially one up to 2,500 with plans for up to 30,000 active satellites in Earth orbit at one time. And so there is a real need for some kind of traffic control, just like we have with airplanes. Uh, imagine today with all the airline, military, civil traffic flying around, if there were no rules or regulations, you know, it would it would literally not be a safe thing to do. And we're on the threshold of that exact same parallel in Earth orbit. So a lot of what we're going to talk about is not only the methodology that you would use for consciously organizing and establishing a framework for operations, but also the other side of the picture which is how do you deal with hazards? And in this case, orbital debris as it exists in space. So I, Mark, I'm, I'm fascinated with this because of course, sort of instinctively as somebody ha that hasn't been up there, I think sort of space debris and my mind goes to everything from huge satellites to sort of chunks of metal. I, what are these bits and pieces look like? Are we talking about lots of mini little sort of um, satellites or are we talking about great big well, chunks? Well, I'm going to I'm going to answer it two ways. First, I'm going to tell a story, if you'll allow me. Um, and Katie's probably familiar with this. In 1991, when I was on Discovery, we were going to have a close approach with a Russian rocket body that was no longer active. And we maneuvered Discovery slightly so that we would not bump into each other. But I was asked by NASA to take a picture of the rocket body when it passed by the shuttle. So I duly got my Nikon film camera and went to the window and waited for the time for the rocket to go by, and I never saw a thing. So after about 10 minutes, I called Houston and said, you know, what happened? And they said it, it went by on time. And I said, well, how fast was it moving? And they said, oh, seven kilometers a second. <laughs> and so, and so there were there were two things that impressed me. One is obviously they had some fun at my expense because how on earth are you going to take a picture of anything moving at seven kilometers a second? And the other part of it is, if an object is moving that fast and you were going to bang into it, it was not going to be a good day. So right. if, if you forward that now to kind of the other half of the question is what constitutes what in the business we would classify as lethal debris. And lethal debris would be how big a chunk do you have to have uh, before it will literally do severe damage to your spacecraft, whether there are people in it or it's a communication satellite or whatever. And where in the past, we only used to track objects that were 10 centimeters or larger. In other words, you know, a, a mm -hmm. large softball size. We've now found through research that because of these speeds, you know, a typical orbiting object is going at 17,400 miles per hour, that something as small as a marble is potentially lethal to a spacecraft. And so the whole problem changed dramatically when we came to that understanding. And that that is such an important point, it, it seems, because it isn't just the what we might call the weight of something if it's on the ground, but it's the momentum. It's, it's how fast it's going as well as how much mass it's got. That's exactly correct. And so then the problem becomes, okay, well, how many how many pieces of junk are there up there that fall into that category? Because now instead of just rocket bodies like like we had to deal with, 
you're talking about nuts, bolts, pieces of whatever, glove, food, you know, anything. Um, and, and so the computational problem that we're faced with in the industry, instead of looking at about 27,000 objects today in Earth orbit, when you use the proper definition of lethal debris, jumps that total up to about 500,000 objects. So just the computation of when things could bang together now becomes an enormous issue. Well, I, I think it's good to um, and to emphasize maybe that, you know, like I started, I joined the Astronaut Corps in 1992 and people would say, well, what about all that space debris? And I mean, because it's something that people have been conscious with, of, of for a long time, but well, that's tracked by the Air Force, 10 centimeters. You know, and, and everybody's kept that picture for a long time, and it's not until we now have better instrumentation to really understand those, you know, how, how many smaller pieces in that and the damage that they right. can do. So it's really a different world here in the last few years, I think. No, you're exactly right. And there's there's a important point we need to make when we do that. The, the military, both in the United States and overseas, that has tracked these objects in the past has a different set of priorities than all the rest of us. They're, they're worried about military applications and information that supports maintaining a safe and free world. Looking at a you know, university research satellite is not exactly very high on their list of priorities. So where they may look at their own stuff and stuff that belongs to other people on a very frequent basis, they're not gonna look at this other stuff other than maybe once every couple of weeks. Well, be, because the observations are spread out in time, the error in terms of understanding exactly where that satellite is at any given you know, day, time, and point in its orbit gets large. And often that's referred to as the error football around the estimated position. And either the poor, the quality of the radar or laser that's used to ping the satellite or the length of time between observations causes this error ellipsis air football to grow. And that's one of the major problems we're trying to deal with. So then how do you deal with that? I, I what is So I'm beginning to get this sort of picture of space being full of stuff, and we're not quite sure where it is, which sounds <laughs> incredibly scary if you're actually going up there. Um, how do you reduce that, that error football, if you like? Right. Well, we're, we're very fortunate. There's a number of commercial companies, and I'm going to name one as an example called Leo Labs out of California that has a commercial business they're developing where they're going to track everything that's going uh, in orbit in order to generate high-precision orbits that can then be used to do these calculations and sell that information to the actual satellite operators. Be because there's another side to this. Um, if, if you're told that you're about to collide with somebody else's satellite, and either one or both of you have the ability to maneuver, somebody should maneuver to get out of the way. Right. And, I mean, that would be a real good idea because, uh, you know, a collision at, you know, 30,000 miles per hour is not going to make your day. So I think the other guy should move, right? The other yeah, guy. The other guys, well, and actually, we actually have a case in that already. Um, one of, I think it was one of Elon Musk's satellites was about to collide with somebody else. And they tried to contact him to say, hey, would you mind, you know, just changing your orbit a little bit? And quite frankly, he never responded. I mean, he is dealing with a large constellation of relatively low-cost satellites. And from his perspective, losing one is no big deal. 
But if my satellite, you know, is a gazillion dollar satellite and he, you know, drills a hole right through it, I'm going to be a bit upset about that. So one of the things that our, our association is advocating is there need to be uh, clear rules, a clear code of conduct. To your point, Andrew, that if two people are about to collide, somebody needs to change their orbit, you know, whatever, so that this conjunction, which is what they call it, does not occur. And how close are we to those sort of rules? Well, I think we're very close. We we have drafted a set that we're disseminating within the community right now, trying to stimulate this debate and discussion. And one of the reasons it's being resisted a little bit is because right now liability rests with the country from which a spacecraft originated. So if it's launched from the United States and something bad happens, the United States is liable. That's really not a workable situation. You're talking about corporations having, you know, constellations of 3,000 or more satellites. They should be liable for their own product. So if you put a system of rules and regulations in place, a code of conduct, if you will, and somebody elects not to change their orbit when they should have and a collision occurs, they now become legally liable for those damages. So one thing, if I can just sort of extend this out before uh, Katie comes in, one thing that strikes me, if there is a collision, presumably there's debris from that collision. um, Do you then have to take that into account? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, In (laughs) fact, that's one of the big problems. Um, in, In this near miss that occurred last October that we're talking about, you were talking about two satellites with a combined mass of over 6,000 pounds. And and when these things uh, collide, or if they had collided, their closure speed was going to be over 30,000 miles per hour. So they they don't vaporize. Instead, they shatter into a gazillion little pieces. But most of these pieces are going to be above the lethal debris limit, all traveling now in slightly different orbits. And so you're Mm -hmm. effectively trashing uh, large swaths of orbit and making it unusable for other people. And, and it's important uh, point to note that we worry about this no matter what altitude these orbits have to be, because if you're going to put a new communication satellite up in geosynchronous... So that means like 22,000 right. miles away, right. really far away. Really right. high up. But you have to pass through all these lower and intermediate altitudes to get there. So... Mm-hmm. It, it's a problem for everybody. It's not just a problem for somebody down at one specific altitude. So I'm going to just say that, you know, I've been listening and basically it seems overwhelming. You know, that there's there's so much that is already up there and how to get people to agree to rules, you know, what it because if you have rules, then you have this liability. So all these questions that are hard. Well, you're exactly right. And I'm very encouraged. Because just like you said, a lot of pieces to this puzzle already exist. But the problem is somebody, some adult in this process, it has to integrate them all together and be willing to enforce the rules. There are commercial companies out there now that are generating proper radar data that could be used to generate an ephemeris or a catalog, if you will, of everybody that's up in orbit. So the piece that's missing is the management oversight that will glue all this together and make all the children behave properly. Um, My greatest fear is even though we have all the pieces to make this work, it's going to require some kind of a minor catastrophe for everybody to go, oh my God, 
we, we got to do this today. We got to stop, you know, kicking this down the road and finally deal with it. But one way or the other, I think we're getting very close to having a solution. So talking about catastrophes, um, we talked about <laughs> He always about wants this. to get to this, by the way, Mark. <laughs> I, 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 I've just been dying to get to this, this part. So I suspect that many people listening have watched the movie Gravity. And I know we had this conversation before the show where you expressed your utter delight in this movie. Um, <laughs> but I imagine people are thinking sort of, is this what it's like? Do you have these, this sort of cloud of debris going around just obliterating everything? Can we have these sort of runaway events or is that just total science fiction? Yeah, let's see. I'm going to choose my wording carefully. <laughs> um, some of what was depicted was very realistic. If if a debris event occurs, <clears throat> it 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 could impact everybody in that localized area, just as mm-hmm. it was demonstrated. Now, meaning that one thing breaks up, those pieces hit exactly. something else. Those pieces hit something else. It, exactly. Now, the way some of the characters responded to that. <laughs> <laughs> issue we'll, we'll leave for another day. But it, it was not a bad illustration of what potentially could occur on a very bad day. I'd just yeah. like to jump in here and say I did consult on the Gravity movie, but not on the physics. I was about like, <laughs> what's it like to live in space? What's it like to be away you, from you, home? You were the Sandra Bullock stand-in. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say stand-in, but uh, we did get to, we had her cell phone number. It's it's a race now. But anyways, it was actually quite fun on our crew to uh, try to find out the, talk about the things that she wanted to know about living in space, well, but we and, did not address the physics. Right. And, and we're having a little fun at Sandra's expense and the movie's expense, but it, but it was great in that it brought to light this issue for the general public. So listening to this, I, I'm getting the impression from you, you that there is this spaghetti mess of a problem. Um, how do you begin to pass that out? What are some of the, the the biggest challenges to you that we need to think about in terms of how we how we come up with something which is tractable? Well, you know, the obvious one is first you have to recognize that you have a problem. And I think right. we all are there. Um then right after that is you have to have a central management or a coordinating body. Some adult has to be in charge, whether it's a, a U.S. government agency, the United Nations, or who or whoever. But for right now, let's let's start with the Department of Commerce, in the United States. Then the next steps would be to develop your framework. And just like Katie said, it's not just the radar data that you would either buy from a commercial company or from universities or from the military, you need to be able to integrate that together into a catalog or a database that everybody accepts as being credible and real and accurate. And then there needs to be a third step where you actually analyze this data and look for potential conjunctions, which is another word for collisions. Mm -hmm. Once you do that, then there's the communications protocol where you have to be able to contact people and say, listen, you two are looking at a potential collision three days down the road. We need to now go to the code of conduct, the rules of behavior, uh, flight rules, if you want to call it that, and somebody needs to move. And hopefully at least one of them will be able to move. The worst case would be obviously two objects where nobody can move, and then you'd have to deal with the aftermath, aftermath of a collision. So this is all very good. And then along with the the code of conduct, of course, comes liability and all the rest of that. But these are all all things that we can deal with in a very methodical way. Um, Why should ordinary people 
care about this problem. And I'll actually ask it a different way too, which is how do we get ordinary people to care about this problem or enough people to make big strides in solving it? Well, gravity too. You need to make another movie, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think that's actually, I, I was thinking about it as we were talking. I mean, let's say you made a movie about an event that we could predict where you needed to contact people and people had to make hard decisions together between different countries. And you basically featured that UN organization that we're talking about acting and people were like, yeah, we should be having one of those. Yeah. Or or the worst case, somebody had the information and just didn't pass it along and, you know, the accident occurred. Right. Well, we can help Sandra write the script. There's no, no, no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah. And, and just to jump off of that, we're going to have more people flying into space than ever before, you know, besides, you know, military and NASA. You know, we now have this huge commercial activity. So preventing loss of life in the civilian sector obviously is paramount. And then second to that would be for people down here in the ground to to lose access to the internet, the videos, all, all the rest of the stuff that we just take for granted. So those are the things that we just cannot afford to be denied. So all of this is crucial. So then talking about playing out, uh, looking out, say five years from now, Mark, um, what is the thing that worries you most? What to you is the worst possible scenario from here? Uh, well, two. Uh, the first one would be that we would have an accident before we can get our act together. That would be truly tragic to have some kind of an impact on uh, the International Space Station or any other manned vehicle. That would be just horrible. Even if people weren't hurt, you know, right. if, even if it just basically diminished the capability to do the research that we're doing up there. Correct. And and everybody should understand this kind of thing has ha- happened before. We've had small debris hits on space shuttle. Um, the Mir Space Station had a hole the size of a large softball through one of its solar arrays. Um, we've, we maneuvered the space station, I think it was 15 times in one year, just to avoid you know these kind of conjunctions. But the other fear I have is that the government agencies, Department of Commerce, um, that we've charged with stepping up to this is just not going to move fast enough to deal with uh, a problem of this magnitude. And, and that's my biggest fear. When you have, when you get to go to Washington and explain this to uh, Kamala Harris, and yeah, <laughs> President yeah. Biden, what, what, are, and over, over coffee or adult beverages, what are you going to tell him, Mark? Well, I, I think we tell him this very story that we've just been through, and and all of us in the community have had some of these firsthand experiences, like we talked about earlier, Katie, and help them appreciate that this is not science fiction, this is reality. And unless you want to be dealing with a major catastrophe on your watch, you need to step up and deal with this today. Help us put these pieces together so we can feel the robust program that can then be adopted by the international community. And of course, even if you don't have that meeting, they can always listen to the podcast. Mark Brown. I like it. <laughs> thank you for coming on to Interplanetary. And go see Gravity 2 starring Katie Coleman. <laughs> Mark Brown, the consultant. There you go. And Andrew. <laughs> That's great. Thanks very much, Mark, for coming on. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. Nice to see you. Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space. Podcast, audio only. 
but we can let you hear what space sounds like. In a segment we call Sounds of Space. Okay, Andrew, what was that? So that, Katie, had to be special effects from 1960s Doctor Who slowed (laughs) down. It couldn't be anything else. Awesome. (laughs) Can I make a small... Maybe early 1970s, somewhere around about there. A small course correction, okay? Are you ready? (laughs) Go on. You know, I have no idea. It just sounds like cheap sci-fi effects. Tell me what it is. That was the sound of Jupiter's auroras. These auroras are just like the the northern lights that you can see on Earth. And the solar wind excites gas particles in the planet's upper atmosphere, and it creates this eerie, spectacular glow. NASA's spacecraft Juno recorded these radio waves during its close flyby of Jupiter in 2016. Now, this recording is actually 13 hours of data compressed into just a few seconds and shifted into an audio range that we could hear. So radio astronomers call these kilometric emissions because the wavelengths are about a kilometer long. That was the sound of Jupiter. That is pretty impressive. Although I have to say the Doctor Who crew got there first. Okay, (laughs) I'll, I'll buy that. And I like Doctor Who. Thinking about this, I cannot believe that we have such a sci-fi sounding sound from Jupiter. I, it's actually quite incredible when you think about it. And it's real. Yeah. It's, re- it's real. It's not made up. It's real. Well, so those sci-fi folks did know what they're talking about. Cheap or not, right? They were ahead of their time. <laughs> hey, let's listen to it again. show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu. And recommend us to your friends. If you don't have friends, you could look for friends and recommend us to them. Ah, Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative and Slate. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.